Welcome to Revolutionize Your Retirement Radio, bringing you insights and strategies to help you create a magnificent and fulfilling second half of life. Here's your host, certified professional retirement coach and best-selling author, Dr. Dorian Mincer. I want to welcome everybody to my fourth Tuesday Revolutionize Your Retirement interview with Expert Series to help you create a fulfilling second half of life. I'm Dory Mincer, owner of Revolutionize Retirement and host for this series. So without further ado, let me introduce Rabbi Laura. Rabbi Geller is Rabbi Emerita of Temple Emmanuel of Beverly Hills, California. She was twice named one of Newsweek's 50 Most Influential Rabbis in America, and she was named by PBS Next Avenue as one of the 50 2017 Influencers in Aging. Prior to becoming one of the first women to be selected through a national search to lead a major metropolitan synagogue, Rabbi Geller served as the director of Hillel of the University of Southern California for 14 years as the, and as the Pacific Southwest Region's Executive Director of the American Jewish Congress for four years. She was featured in the PBS documentary Jewish Americans. She's been author of numerous articles in books and journals, including the book I just mentioned, her more recent, Getting Good at Getting Older, and she was on the editorial board of the Torah, A Woman's Commentary. She serves as a fellow of the Corporation of Brown University, from where she graduated in 1971. And in addition, she serves on the boards of Encore.org and the Jewish Woman's Archives. She was ordained by Hebrew Union College in 1976 and is the third woman in the reform movement to become a rabbi. She loves being step-parent to Andy Siegel and Ruth Siegel, parent to Joshua Goldstein and Alana Goldstein and their respective partners, and grandparent to Avery and Levy Goldstein. So I am so delighted that the Rabbi Geller is with us today. I actually had the pleasure of meeting her via Zoom last October. She was part of our scholar-in-residence program at the temple that I belong to in Brookline, Mass., and I had been asked um, by our rabbi to interview her. And I had known about her because of the influencer in aging, and I had been aware of her book. And so it was just a delight, you know, to, well, it was a delight to meet you. I can talk to you directly now. <laughs> and it was just a wonderful opportunity. And I said that I really wanted, I wanted you to be part of this program, too, so that you could have a wider audience. So I am so delighted that you're with us today. So welcome. Well, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks. So I always like starting out by kind of what what brought you to writing this book? What got you thinking about aging and, you know, getting older and getting good at getting older? Well, the easiest way for me to explain is to just read a little bit from the introduction to the book. So with your permission, that's what I'm going to do. Uh, the book okay. starts, you do you remember the 60s, the bumper stickers that read yeah. Question Authority, the marches, the music, the energy? We believed that we could change the world, that we were invincible and immortal, that anything was possible. You remember that the book that captured the ethos of that generation was the Whole Earth Catalog, a do-it-yourself manual of the American counterculture. Among its opening lines is this. We are as gods, and we might as well get good at it. Well, 
now that we're in our 60s or 70s, more or less, we know that we're neither invincible nor immortal. In fact, we're all too human. Perhaps our mantra now should be, we're getting older, and we might as well get good at it. Well, that was the 60s. That book inspired a kind of or captured a revolution that was also going on in the Jewish community that led to a book in 1973 that my late husband, Richard Siegel, and his friends wrote, which was called The Jewish Catalog, a do-it-yourself kit. It empowered a generation to take back Judaism from the staid hands of our elders and to reshape it for our times. Getting good at getting older is Rich's, was Rich's response to that book that he wrote so many years ago. The book that challenged us to take back Judaism from the staid hands of our elders. And now that we are the elders, how are we going to take back our lives? Instead of staid hands, we bring a sense of humor and curiosity to ask what guidance Jewish wisdom can offer us now. And that is what inspired the writing of this book. That was the first origin story of the book. So this is kind of a Jewish catalog. For us boomers, that was the 60s and 70s. Now we're in our 60s and 70s. And how do we, what are the tools that we need in order to get good at getting older? The other origin story of the book is that about mm, almost 10 years ago, when I was 62, I was beginning to think about our next stage. And I noticed I was the senior rabbi of Temple Emmanuel, and I noticed that a huge percentage of our congregants were boomers, and many of them were leaving the congregation. That observation led to a listening campaign where we talked to about 250 congregants in people's homes, in very intimate conversations. And we asked people how they feel about this stage of life, between maturity, when they built their families and their careers, and frail old age. And it turns out that this is a new stage of life, one that didn't exist for our grandparents. All of us are now living approximately 30 years longer than people were a century ago because of advances in medicine, education, and science. And as you know, those years are not tacked on to the end of our lives, but in the middle, between midlife and frail old age. Again, a whole life stage that didn't exist before. We are the pioneers of this new life stage. And ironically, in these um, conversations with congregants, we ask people, what do you call this new stage? And what do you call yourself? You know, who are you at this moment? And it turns out that it was really hard to name this stage. What do we call ourselves? So boomers, well, some of us are technically boomers, people that were born between 1946 and 1964, but not all of us. Some are a little older, some of us are a little younger. Do we call ourselves seniors? Well, I personally... In the olden days when you could still go to movies, you know, I like those scenes discounts, <clears throat> but uh, a lot of people don't like that word. Are we retired? Well, it depends whether we worked or not. Are we rewired? <clears throat> Are we seasoned? Are we elders? It's interesting that Jewish tradition and many religious traditions venerate elders, but we live in a culture that doesn't really venerate. In fact, it makes elders invisible. 
So what do we call ourselves? Active, older, adults, younger, older, the encore generation, the third chapter. My favorite is what Dr. Laura Carstensen from the Stanford Center of Longevity calls us. She calls us perennials, still blooming after all these years. The important thing that emerged in the conversations is that we're not just talking about ourselves. This is not just a new life stage for me and my friends. Someday, our millennial children and grandchildren, if we have them, will be in this stage. So we are inventing a new life stage, just like adolescence was invented in the 20s, right? That's the word first appears around then. Why? Because before then, people were children and then they were adults, right? It was a new life stage. We are creating this new life stage. And it's really important for us to look at who we are, to recognize that it's not exactly a chronological age, it's more of a functional age, and that we're different from each other. Some of us are healthy and still very active. Others wrestle with physical challenges, with disabilities, with illness, with caregiving. Some of us are parents of adult children. Some of us are grandparents. But some of us don't have kids or grandchildren or don't have the kinds of connections with them that we wish we had. Some of us are solo agers. Some of us have partners. Some of us are straight and some of us are LGBTQ. Some of us have discretionary resources and some of us worry about financial futures. It's really important as we think about this cohort that we have a lot in common, but we're still a very diverse group. And we are reimagining a life stage. And we're reimagining a lifespan as well, because as you well know, Dory, demographers predict that children that are born since 2000 will live to be 100. And children that are born in 2007 will live to be 104. But we live in a world where most of our policies were put in place for very different assumptions about the age of our population. So this is a sort of long answer about uh, to why we wrote the book, but the, the these are the issues that emerged in yeah. in this listening campaign and that turn out to be the, the table of contents for the book. It was a wonderful answer, and in a sense, you you kind of responded to what I was going to ask as my second question, which is, what did you learn while writing the book? And are there any other parts that you want to add of what you've learned while writing it? Because I mean, I just I do want to tell people I, it's a wonderful book, and it just touches on so many things. And I must say, whether you're Jewish or not, the focus on what's important in this life stage. And one of my participants, Janice, has said she calls it the third age, and I know a lot of people call it that, but it, you're so right on that it's important for us to figure out how we want to live it how and how to live it as best we can. Were there any other things you know, that that you learned well, so, while writing the book that would be helpful well, for the listeners? So again, again, first, what we learned from the listening campaign that led to the writing yeah. of the book. So we asked people, now that more years are added to your life, how are you going to add more life to your years? Um, what do you want in those extra years? What keeps you up at night? What gets you up in the morning? What are your fears? What are your hopes? And we learned that people had four primary fears. They kept coming up. The first fear was becoming invisible. Who am I when I'm no longer the senior rabbi of Temple Emmanuel in Beverly Hills, right? The second fear was being isolated. Social capital shrinks 
when we stopped working, when the people that we drove our kids to carpool with, you know, moved away, friends die. Who are my friends? I'm lonely. And of course, the pandemic sort of raised that up for so many of us. The third fear was being without purpose. What am I going to do all day? And the fourth fear was being dependent. God forbid I should ever be dependent. So those were people's fears. And then in the conversations, people asked lots of different questions. Questions like, how do I navigate changing relationships with older parents, with millennial children, with intimate partners, and in particular with friends? How do I nurture long-term connections? How do I let go of toxic friendships? You know, now that I know there's less time ahead than there was behind, do I still want to have people in my life that suck energy as opposed to give me energy? How do I make new friends? And then as the, the issue that kept emerging, as friends move away, some of us are kids too, with whom do I want to grow old? That became a really important question. With whom do I want to grow old and in what kinds of settings? Do I want to move to be near my kids? Do I want to move to a retirement community? Do I want to age in place? We discovered that in my congregation, the majority of the congregants wanted to age in place. But in order to do that, what kinds of changes do we need to make in our, in our neighborhoods and in our communities in, in order to have the kind of support systems that will enable us to stay safely and, and in, in, in an engaged way, you know, in the homes that we love? And that actually led to the creation of a unique partnership between my synagogue and another synagogue as we created a synagogue village modeled after the village-to-village movement uh, vision that started in Beacon Hill in your your neighborhood, Dory, you know, in 2001, where neighbors got together and created a virtual village. This is a movement, as you well know, and I suspect you've spoken about it before on, on this in this conversation. Okay. Um, there are two, 200 villages around the country, neighborhood villages. There are 200 more in formation, but we are the only synagogue-based village that exists in the country. And it's an interesting model for faith-based communities because a good church, mm-hmm. a good synagogue, a good mosque ought to be a village for those uh, members of the community that want to to age in place. And the other thing that we discovered is that we thought people would want to join this village because they would want to give or get services. You know, I'm going away. I need somebody to take out my trash when I'm gone or, or uh, I need a ride to the doctor. But what we discovered is that people really want social connection. This issue of loneliness um, and isolation is huge a- across the, uh, the lifespan, but it is particularly complicated for people as we grow older. And, you know, one of the things that I think is really true is that before there was the uh, COVID pandemic, there was a public health crisis of loneliness, an epidemic. And now that the now that the pandemic seems to be uh, waning, you know, are we going to be able to really turn our attention to this fundamental epidemic of loneliness? Because you know well that mm-hmm. social connection and quality of relationships are predictors of physical health, longevity, quality of life, etc. So those were some of the things we yeah. learned. Um, and you know, really important. Of, it, yeah. No, go ahead. Yep. You know, lots of other questions emerge as well, questions that, again, become um, central to the book. Questions like, how do I deal with illness, my own or that of my friends? I mean, clearly throughout our lives, there's been illness in many of our lives, but it's no question that it gets more intense as we grow older. 
I don't know about you, but, you know, I have a rule with my friends that whenever we get together, either virtually or face-to-face, we can only do the organ recital for five minutes. The organ <laughs> recital is when everybody goes around the table and talks about what's wrong with each of their organs. You know, you can only do that for five minutes. Then you have, then you have to get on to talking about something else. But, you know, how do I deal with illness? How do I be a good friend to a friend who's ill? How do I visit the sick? How do I deal with my own illness and, and to be able to say what I need um, or what I don't want from, from uh, people who love me? So those issues and then other kinds of questions. What do I need to do to get ready for the inevitable? How do I have those end-of-life conversations that I know I need to have? We discovered in the congregation that the vast majority of congregants had end-of-life directives, but the majority of those people had never discussed those with their adult children or the people that would be responsible for carrying out those wishes. How do you have those conversations? How do you get your adult kids to have them with you? And if you don't have kids, with whom do you have the conversations? How do you create a community around you that's going to be there for you at, the, at that moment of transition? So all of those issues came up. And as you know, they're all particularly addressed in the book. And the book is not a sermon. It's a toolkit. You know, So when, when you're thinking about how to write that end-of-life directive, how to have those conversations, the book actually walks you through with the help of the Conversation Project, the wonderful effort that also began in Boston to help people have these these conversations. You know, other issues, what will give meaning to my life now that I no longer work full-time? How can I find a volunteer or a paid position to which I can bring my experience, my talent, my passion? I still have a lot of energy, a lot to give. I am of the generation that believed that we could change the world, and I still want to be part of changing the world. I don't want to be stuffing envelopes. I want to find ways to really engage my talent, my passion, my energy. One thing that was really interesting to me and has become a section of the book is what do I have to do now to become the 85-year-old or 90-year-old I someday want to be? You know, that movie when Harry met Sally, when Estelle Reiner points to Meg Ryan and says, I want what she's having. Well, occasionally we get to meet somebody who's 85 or 90 and I want what she's have. How do, how do, I'm 71 now. How do I become that 85-year-old, that 90-year-old? Mm-hmm. It turns out that Jewish spiritual practice and spiritual practices of other religious traditions help us do that. You know that all the data suggests that there are character traits that if we cultivated them now, they would be helpful to us in becoming that vision of an 85-year-old or 90 the character trait of um, gratitude, the character trait of forgiveness, the character trait of equanimity. It turns out that Jewish tradition and other religious traditions actually have practices that help you become more grateful, things that you could actually do, things that you can study, ways that you can work on yourself to help you develop the kind of spiritual muscles to keep you emotionally, spiritually, and and in, in every way kind of engaged in the world so that you have a shot of becoming that 85-year-old or 90-year-old. And finally, the questions that kept emerging were questions about legacy. You know, what lives on asking me? How do I use what I have built in my life to leave a legacy and actually to live a legacy. Well, how do I think about money? 
How do I think about stuff? How do I think about stories? How do I think about values? So there's a section in the book that, that helps us think about getting good at giving away. I have some bad news for people on this call, and that is that our children don't want our stuff. What are we going to do with all the stuff that we have accumulated? You know, it's not an easy, not an easy answer, but an important question for people to think about. So, all of these are, are issues that I learned in the writing of the book and in the and in the speaking about the book that I have been privileged to be able to do, you know, since the book. Such valuable insights. And again, um, it, it, it is a toolkit. I mean, the, the book is wonderful of, for people of whatever faith you are. But, but let's segue into some of the rituals because I love that part. And then I have a bunch of other questions and I know I'm beginning to get questions from other people. So again, just to remind you, if you have questions or comments, go to the events page and please write down your name and where you're from and your question. And at the end of the call, best question is judged by me. We'll get a copy of this wonderful book. But anyway, I was asking this question about rituals and inviting you if you would share, because there's so many things that you mention as transitions in this new stage of life. And the idea of that rituals help us kind of deal with the transition. So I'd love it if you would be willing to share some of that. So it turns out that in many of our religious traditions, there's a lot of life cycle ritual, transitions from one stage of life to the next. And many of them are clustered in the early part of our life. A baby is born, and then in my tradition, there's a, a, a circumcision ceremony or for a girl, an introduction to the covenant ceremony. In my tradition of adolescence, there's a bar of bat mitzvah. There's a confirmation, often there's a wedding, sometimes there's a divorce. There's a lot of life cycle rituals clustered into the first part of our life. Interestingly, at least in Jewish tradition, between your first marriage, if you got married, and the end of your life, there are no rituals. The next ritual after marriage is actually a funeral, which is bizarre because most likely I'm going to live many more years between my first marriage and my funeral than between when I was born and my first marriage. So what is the story about that stage of life? You know, are there no moments when we recognize the transcendent in our life where we're moving from one stage of life to another? Now, if you ask the traditional Jew, the response would be, well, we don't need new rituals because we relive them with our children, right? So, I had my own rituals and then my children's rituals and now my grandchildren's rituals. So that's it. I don't need to create anything new. The problem with that is that not all of us have kids or grandchildren. And also, I am more than just a mom and a grandmother. There are moments of transition in my life that are significant and that I want to pay attention to. Rituals matter. They tell us what's important. And they also teach us how to think about the transitions that we're experiencing. So you think about retirement, for example. You know, mostly it's thought of as kind of a kind of secular experience. Maybe there's a party, maybe there's a watch, maybe there's nothing. But anybody who has been retired knows that it's a, it's a huge transition. It challenges everything. You know, who am I? What do I do with the rest of my life? How do I mark this? What are the new commitments I'm going to be making? It's a moment that in some ways could be enriched and enhanced 
by paying attention and creating ritual. So one of the things that we ask in the book is what are the moments of our lives in this stage that would be enhanced, enriched, made more um, significant if we could find a way to market. Let me give you an example by reading a very short uh, piece from the book. Saying goodbye to the house where you raised your children isn't easy, but it's easier if you actually say goodbye. Our daughter, our boyfriend, my husband and I walk through the rooms of our home stopping in each one to share good memories and to honor the room for its service. After our journey through time, space, and love, we shed a few tears, toasted the house, and sent it on its way to shelter and protect a new family. Before this ritual, we were stuck, painfully holding on to the house that we had built 27 years before when our daughter was born. But after the ritual, we felt joy and contentment as we realized how rich those years had been and how ready we were to let go and move on. So many of us have had the experience of leaving a home. This is not a religious ritual, right? You don't have to be connected to any religious tradition in order to acknowledge that the place where you raised your family, if you did, or, uh, you know, that the moment that you leave that, you know, is important. How do you mark that? Some years uh, ago, congregant called me uh, and said, Rabbi, we're, uh, my brother and I are on my way, our way to my mother's home. We are moving her into a nursing home. What's the prayer you say when you begin to close up your parents' home? And I said, yes, there should be a prayer. You know, what is the prayer? And, you know, we, you know, pasted something together and they later reflected back to me that what would have been a chore became a sacred mm-hmm. task because they were able to pay attention to it in a different way and recognize that there, that the, you know, that, that adding this ritual piece, you know, really made a significant difference. So, you know, I ask your listeners to think about what are the moments in your life when you wished that you had had such a ritual, or maybe you did, maybe you made one up, or maybe in your faith community there is, you know, some way of marking something. What are those moments? You know, when you first become a grandparent, for example, when you celebrate a major birthday, when you want to perhaps renew your commitments to your intimate partner, you know, sort of a renewal of vows ceremony, you know, have people done things like that? What are the things people have done? I'm really curious about this and would invite anyone on this call to go to my website, which is www.rabbilauragellar.com. And tell me about something that you did. Someday it will maybe appear in another book when we write a book on rituals for this stage of life. And the other thing that I think is really important is that it's a way of reframing experience. I mean, so for example, you know, one of the real issues of this stage of life, particularly as we get a little older, some of us, is recognizing when it's no longer safe to drive. You know, giving up the keys. Now, in a place like L.A., you know, where if you don't have a car, it's really difficult to get around. This is experienced by people as, you know, real loss. People put it off to way beyond the time when it's still safe. How do you reframe this experience of giving up keys from one of loss 
to one of wisdom. How could we say about somebody who's wise enough to understand that it's no longer safe to drive instead of being about loss, but about wisdom? How do we honor a person for that kind of decision? So, for example, you know, in my fantasy, if a synagogue or a church could create a ritual around that, honoring people in the community that have done that, two things happen. One is what is a loss becomes also something that a person can be proud of, number one. And number two, it makes the community responsible for getting that person around, right? If I in my synagogue have this kind of ritual, then it's on the synagogue to figure out how people still get to synagogue, you know, or how people still get their shopping done. And the community then is involved in the transformation of a person's life around this kind of change. So, so that's why I'm so excited about the question of what are these moments and how do we mark them and how does the marking of these moments change the communities in which we live? Because I think it, it has some really important possibilities for us. I, I think you're so right, and it really keeps coming back to it takes a village. You know, it takes exactly. it takes yeah. community, and and we all do need each other. And you know, I and 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 I, I as I said right before we went <laughs> went offline, it's it's so important. I, I find for myself to have rituals of things just to mark the transition, to notice in a sense, to 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 sort of be more present with whatever that change is. Yeah. So I, I do think it's so important. So, you know, we've gotten some wonderful questions here, but but I want to make sure that we also talk about some of the intergenerational kind of connections. So one of the questions that will lead into it is, what do you think would have been different if you wrote the book after the pandemic began? I think a lot would have been different. There are like four, four or three or four major areas that, that um, really were lifted up by the pandemic. The first is the, you know, there's talk of tension between the generations. I don't know if you remember, but at the beginning of the uh, pandemic, there was a meme, you know, hashtag boomer remover, that the pandemic was the, you know, not such a bad thing because of the only people that were dying were all the people that didn't really matter. This the ageism that is real became very real, very noticeable because of the pandemic. You know, ageism is the only acceptable ism left in our society. You know, negative stereotypes that people have about older people. Everybody on this call knows how it manifests itself in unemployment, in uh, employment discrimination, right. biased healthcare, caricatures, invisibility. What's also important to, to notice is that it's not only it's not only ageism writ large, but internalized ageism. The negative stereotypes that we have of ourselves is very, very significant. You know, anybody who's ever said 70 is the new 50, it's not true. I mean, it's just a way of denying that we're getting older. What happened because of the pandemic is that all of a sudden, even those of us who denied that we were getting older, we couldn't do it anymore because... Everybody knew it was a frightening time to be an older adult because everybody over 60 was particularly vulnerable. And so this tension between the younger generation and the older generation and the acknowledgement that people who are getting older are vulnerable in different ways led to a new intergenerational moment. So on the one hand, there's a tension. And on the other hand, because of the virus, those of us with adult children you know, is the first time our adult kids actually thought of ourselves 
thought of us as being vulnerable and and maybe it enabled us for the first time to be able to acknowledge that we might need something that we didn't want to admit that we needed before you know the the boomers effect efforts to stay young act young delayed our ability to kind of have important conversations with our kids but because of the virus they started to worry about us and we maybe began to acknowledge some of our internalized ageism. And at the same time, I I couldn't have gotten through the pandemic at the beginning if my stepdaughter didn't go shopping for me because I couldn't go shopping. So I needed her. And then during Passover, she needed me and she moved into my house during the week of Passover so that we could all, so that we could celebrate together. Many of us had adult kids who moved back to our homes. So sometimes bringing grandchildren with them. I mean, so We saw, I think, in a different way, the value and possibilities of intergenerational connection. And that is is a game changer. You know, it's not just about us in this stage of life, but how do we and other generations together, what can we learn from each other? You know, it used to be, at least in Jewish tradition, there's a Hebrew phrase, Lador Vador, from generation to generation. The idea that I have wisdom, which I'm passing on to the next generation. What we learned during the pandemic is not from generation to generation. It's generations together. How do generations together make a difference and change the world? And I think that that's a huge possible transformation. And it's going to be really interesting to see whether how institutions and and individuals make that change. I mean, for example, you know, we know in my mind, thankfully, that the Biden administration believes in national service. Right now, there's two there's two kinds of national service. There's there's America Corps for young people, and then there's uh, Senior America Corps for older people, and they're separate visions of national service. Well, what if National service didn't, wasn't about being young or being old, but it's generations together working to, you know, provide service. And, you know, we'd be doing the same work, but the, the, the subtext would be that we'd be interacting with each other at the same time. What would it look like if everything had the lens of co-generational connections? You know, whatever you were thinking about or doing, you know, what do parks look like if you think of them as co-generational experiences? What do universities look like if you think of them as co-generational experiences? You know, what what could what would the world look like if we actually saw generations working together as a lens for everything we do? I think that it, again, it could have transformative um, effects. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Okay. And the other thing I want to say is the the other thing that the book would be different is it would be a huge section about technology. There's essentially nothing in the book about technology because who knew how life-saving technology would be. And now we do know that. And it's not just, you know, who can manage to get back on a phone call after you get kicked off or, uh, you know, how to do a Zoom call. But, you know, how does technology change the way we grow older? How does technology change the way we connect with each other? How does technology enable us to stay in our homes longer? I mean, there's a whole universe about technology, and it's not in the book at all because 
we didn't think about it. And if I were to rewrite the book now, there would be a lot about that. And, and as we move into what is clearly going to be a new normal where there's going to be hybrid experiences, you know, what role is technology going to continue to play in a world where we know that face-to-face connections is central to the human experience, but at the same time, it's going to be changed in some ways as, as we figure out this technology piece. So that's another way in which, mm-hmm. which the book would be different. Sounds like you've got another book right there ready to happen. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. I I have some more questions too, but I want to just bring in some of the questions from from some of our listeners, if that's okay with you now. Sure. Um, So Kathy from Raleigh says, about loneliness, she wonders, what can we learn from the British model where they instituted a ministry of loneliness a few years ago? Yeah, it's a a great question. And what we can learn from that this is a national issue that needs to be addressed in a national way. In other words, loneliness is not just about my community figuring out how to deal with it here in Los Angeles in my synagogue. This is a national epidemic. One of the things that we all learned from from the pandemic is that our public health system is not, you know, functioning the way that we would want it to function. And now we know how critical it is that we have to fix that. So in England, the idea that they created a minister of loneliness, you know, what should social policy be? How do you think about everything? recognizing that, you know, one of the, you know, determinants of, of health is creating antidotes to loneliness. So, you know, yes, it's a good, it's a great question, and we should be pressing for national attention to this issue and that it needs to be responded to, again, not just by individuals, but we need to change the, the way our, our country thinks about, about community. And that's something, you know, Maggie Kuhn, you know, the, the, uh, the Great Panther. The Great Panther, I mean, yeah. you know, she, you know, she was on to this a long time ago that it isn't just about individuals. It's about creating, you know, real social change, you know, like the civil rights movement, like the women's movement, like uh, the LGBTQ movement. This needs to be a movement and we need to be active uh, agents in, in getting our governments to pay attention and invest money in thinking in this. Mm-hmm. Great. Kathy had another question, too, which is, did you find a way to bring together people who want to create community but don't belong to a synagogue or a church? Okay, so that's also an interesting question. Because I was the rabbi of the synagogue, I was curious about doing it within the context. Of, but, you know, the village movement is not faith-based, right? I mean, it's neighbor, it's right. neighborhoods. So that that, yeah. that exists. And, you know, one of the things that I would love to imagine, you know, is what would it look like if a church and a synagogue together created a village or a church, a synagogue and a mosque? I mean, there's, mm-hmm. the possibilities are endless for creating community. And, you know, I'm really curious if anybody on the call have experience with this. I suspect there are examples of it that I just don't know mm-hmm. about. And, you know, mm-hmm. how do how do we learn about stuff like this? I mean, one of the reasons that I'm delighted to be on the board of Encore.org is that that is an organization that is engaged in this, these larger questions. And so some of the wonderful examples that are happening around the country 
have been um, supported by Encore. The thought leaders that come out of the Encore community have led to lots of different experiments. So if you know about any of this, any of you on the call, you know, be in touch with me and be in touch with each other. Yeah, great. Another question. To have a purpose is life-affirming, but what are some of the strategies to use in going about searching for your purpose? So, again, you know, there's chapters in the book that, that actually deal with this. I mean, to be without purpose is is one of the fears that people have. So the question is, what is the purpose that you that you wake up for. There's a, a word in the Okinawan language that's connected to all the stages of adult life. It's I, ikigai. It means right. the purpose for which you wake up in the morning. What is our purpose now? I mean, you know, it was clear to me when I was a full-time rabbi at Emmanuel, what was my purpose? It was clear to me when I was involved in, you know, the day-to-day work of child rearing, you know, what was my purpose? But now, at this stage of my life, what is my purpose? So how do you find that? So there are different suggestions that come up in the book. For some people, it's a planful process. You kind of take a gap year after you retire, just like you might have taken a gap year between high school and college, or some of our kids and grandkids are doing that now. And you use that year to kind of explore. You don't make commitments necessarily, but you you test out things. You check into different kinds of organizations in the community. You look at what you care about, you know, what are the issues that they're important to you, and then you find out how people in your community get involved in those kind of issues. And if you take time and you don't necessarily make commitments until you're ready to make commitments. So so that's one strategy, a gap year. Another strategy is to kind of think mm-hmm. about all the things that you wish that you had had time to do. You know, I, you know, maybe I played an instrument earlier in my life and I didn't have time to continue it. You know, is this something that that I want to continue. You know, what are the things that bring you pleasure? What does it bring you joy? I have been um, privileged over the years to be in spiritual direction. Spiritual direction is different from therapy or pastoral counseling. Spiritual direction is sitting with somebody who um, helps you understand what the invitation is at any given moment in your life. And when I began spiritual direction 20 years ago, there were no Jewish spiritual directors, and I was lucky enough to get to find a Presbyterian minister who um, was skilled in spiritual direction. So for over these 20 years, once a month, I sit with her, and she basically says to me, okay, what is the invitation at this moment in your life? And lately, you know, earlier this year, I said to her that I wanted to discover more joy in my life, that that was my intention. And she gave me a practice, and the practice is before I go to sleep at night to think about my day and and try to discern a moment during the day when I really felt a lot, when I felt joy, and to think about a time during the day when I didn't, and to just notice, notice. And in those joyful moments when I felt most engaged, most alive, most purposeful, to see what the invitation is, what is that inviting me to explore? We have a lot of time, you know, we're all living 30 years longer and some of us are going to make it into the hundreds. Assuming that we are healthy, you know, assuming that we are uh, able to 
you know, continue to be engaged in the world intellectually. You know, I want those moments to be moments of, of life and engagement and energy and joy. So I want to pay attention to what, what brings me, um, what brings me that possibility. And it can change, you know, it's what I'm doing now at 71 is going to be different from what I'm doing at 85 and to be open to those kinds of changes. And the, the real thing that I learned, Dory, through all of this is that if we talk to each other about what's going on, that's important. You know, it's it's okay. it's sort of like menopause. In the olden days, women didn't talk about what it was like and people suffered uh, quietly. Well, if we mm-hmm. talk about what our experiences, I mean, on this call, there are people who are experts at getting good at getting older. And they need to talk to their friends. And, you know, how did you, what did you do with your grandmother's hutch that got left across the country that none of your kids want now, even though it's a beautiful antique piece of furniture? I mean, people on this call have figured that out. Or or how do I find an organization that really uses my talent and energy? People on this call have figured it out. Talk to each other. Get groups of people together and, and you know, and share those experiences that creates community it builds the kind of community that all of us need in our life. It, it's an antidote to isolation, and it's actually really helpful in the process of discovering purpose. I, so, in, oh, so important. I'm just reeling with so many of the things that you've said of just thinking about just, you know, you know, how precious it is really for us, as you say, or you said earlier, that, you know, we have this time that our parents' generation didn't have to really think about these things and engage with each other and realize we're not alone and it's okay to talk about all of these things and it will actually help us feel less alone. I have a number of other questions that sort of tie into that. So Mary from Ottawa had given me actually ahead of time some questions, but she says she has a few questions here. I'm going to put them together, and it's focused more on women, if that's all right with you right now. This question thing. So she she asks, are relationships an image and issue for many women when aging? And then let me just read all three, and you can incorporate them. Given the reality that many women age alone, have women grown more confident about growing old alone? And the third question is, aged women today are more financially confident. Is that a key reason why they age happier? Listen, there's no question that those of us who have resources and are not worried about our financial future have a lot more flexibility. And so planning for growing older to have enough resources is really important. I mean, there was an article in the, in the uh, New York Times this, you know, a couple of months ago about financial planning for the future and a, a couple, 30 30-year-old couple going to their financial advisor and discovering that it's not just about financial planning, but about life planning. How do you think about a whole life that where you're going to live to be, you know, 80, 90, 100? So, you know, the financial piece is really important, and it's really important that we recognize that not everybody has the same, you know, resources. Um, Solo aging turns if I were to write the book now, there would also be a chapter on solo aging. When Rich and I wrote the book, you know, when he wasn't sick, we didn't know he was going to die. And I didn't know that I was going to end up being a solo ager, but I am. And it's true that if you're in a partnership, you know, one of you is going to predecease the other. And given 
demographics and stuff, it's very often that the, the woman is the one who ends up being a solo ager. So it's not something that we should be surprised about. So how do you think about solo aging? There's a wonderful book that I just discovered by um, Sarah Gieber called The Retirement for yes. Solo. She's actually she been a guest me. on our program. Yeah, it's a wonderful book. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. bring her back. I mean, you know, it was, yeah. I found the book extremely helpful and, and something that, you know, whether you're a solo ager now or you think, you know, I mean, eventually it's a book that every household ought to have because there will be a solo ager in the household. I think, you know, what was interesting to me when we did the listening campaign at the synagogue is that it was a lot easier for the women to talk than it was the men. For the for many of the men in these conversations, it was the first time they ever admitted fears about being lonely or fears about, you know, I mean, women, because of the women's movement, because of our experience in the 60s and 70s and consciousness raising groups and stuff, I think that women are just more skilled at being able to share their experiences. Also, I think, again, this is a gender stereotype, but I think in general, for many women, wasn't atypical to be balancing a lot of different careers at the same time, maybe a full-time professional career and also you know, we know that women tend to do more of the housework or childcare or whatever. I mean, one of the things we learned in the pandemic is that this was really, really, really difficult for women working, for working women with kids. You know, that's a group of people that really experienced much more, much more difficulty than than men. So, but knowing our ability to balance different kinds of careers and stuff, the the transitions for women, I think, as we give up full-time work, you know, we've done that before in some way or another. And so therefore, Mm -hmm. I think it's been easier for women to sort of move into this stage of life. Plus, there are wonderful other resources like the work of Helen Bennett, her project Renewment which is a project that specifically relates to women who have retired and are reimagining their lives. So there are a lot of those kinds of resources. And anyway, so I think women are in a way more set up for the kinds of connections that that enable sort of smooth transitions. And and it's important to to encourage men and, and to help men find ways into that as well. Maybe it's time to bring back attention to men's groups, which, uh, you know, mm-hmm. still exist, probably not in right. the same um, level as women's groups, but I mean, we know how to do that. And the other thing, truthfully, is that, you know, we're less connected to uh, gender rigidity than we were in the, in the 60s and 70s. You know, the world that we live in is a much more gender fluid yep. world. And, and uh, to celebrate that and embrace that and, you know, recognize that, you know, lots possible that wasn't possible before. I do want to also say something about, you know, I've discovered in my speaking about the book that some of these issues are different for LGBTQ people than than, than for mm-hmm. people who are straight, particularly the issue of solo aging. And so, again, it's important to recognize the fullness of a person's life experience and to see who who one really is in terms of finding ways to create communities that are going to be sustaining and life-giving. Great. And I think you've responded to some of the questions like from Linda with Tallahassee of recommendations. She she had raised the question of her first year in retirement, what suggestions uh, you would have. And I, I think you kind of gave some nice things of thinking about 
you know, what brings you joy. <laughs> so, but are there other things you want would like to add in terms of that question? Well, you know, again, so I, I want to refer people back to the book and encourage you to buy yeah. it. By the way, makes yeah. makes a, a wonderful present for somebody who's not very expensive. And and the book is a toolkit. So at the end of each yeah. chapter, there are resources that actually tell you what websites to go to and what books that you might want to be reading. And and you know, the section on getting good at giving back talks mm-hmm. about how to find a volunteer uh, activity and how to think about volunteering and what you need to be asking organizations before you get make a commitment to them to make sure they can figure out how to use you well. But, you know, again, the book is not a sermon. This book does not say right. um, teach us to number our days, to value each minute. I mean, although that's important, you know, to pay attention to each minute, but mm-hmm. specifically, how do you do it? What are the tools? So who do you call? Um, right. How do you form a group? Get a hold of the book and look at the, the resources. Also, you know, I must say I'm very impressed with AARP. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are wonderful resources on their website. And another website that I have found extremely helpful is nextavenue.org. Everybody on this call should know about it, nextavenue.org. The first avenue apparently was Sesame Street, and now we're on our next right. avenue. And um, Next Avenue is a curated, I think started by PBS, it's a curated website that deals with issues of 50-plus, everything from finances to health right. to spirituality to education to volunteer. It's just really helpful. And there are lots of other websites, too. So you're not alone. There's, you know, we're a huge cohort, you know. I mean, there are more of us now than there are people under 18, and it's only going to get bigger and bigger. People are paying attention, and we need to pay attention, too. Right. Absolutely true. Why don't you, again, tell people where they can get the book? So the, the easiest way to get the book is go to Amazon. You can also get it at Barnes and Nobles. You can also get it through Bookshop. And ideally, you can go to your local bookstore. Now that we can go back to our bookstores and say, this is a good book, you should carry it. Um, you can also get it um, from the publisher. But if you just go to my website, again, www.rabbilaurageller.com, you can click on to uh, little icons for Amazon or Barnes and Nobles or the publisher. Great. And there was a question that Helen Dennis' book is Project Renewment. And Helen's actually yes. been a guest a couple of times on our series. And also, I'm so glad you put a plug in for Next Avenue, too. Rich Eisenberg has been a guest, as has Sarah Zeth Geber, as you mentioned. So, I mean, that is part of the other beauty of your book. I mean, you touch upon the getting good in all these sections of getting older, but there are so many resources and, and suggestions of how to build community, how to do volunteering, how to do all these things. So I really do recommend that people pick up the book. So a couple of other questions here. So Alan from West Palm, West Palm Beach says, what about returning to school? He says, I always wanted to earn a PhD, but had to stop to care for my parents. Is it too late? No, so I think that that's that's his perfect question. You know, when you imagine a life, 
where, you know, you're going to live to be 100 and God willing, you're going to be healthy. Why should education be, why do we think about education from 18 to 21, right? University. Right. I mean, what a great idea it is for people who to go back to school to and and there are these wonderful programs around the country osha is one some universities have programs where you know folks like us can actually be students in undergraduate classes with undergrad and take classes and then there are some wonderful programs at harvard at stanford at the university of minnesota i think and also at notre dame for people in our age cohort or a little bit younger to uh, go back to school and and get another degree, you know, that helps them pivot into some different kind of work experience. Lots of those things are happening. In fact, I think it's Leslie College in in Boston. Is it Leslie? Anyway, some, no, it's not Leslie. It's uh, Anyway, some college in Boston trying to deal with the issue of, of wanting to build housing for for folks in our age cohort realized that uh, that couldn't happen because of whatever codes it could only be for students. And so they made a decision that everybody who moved into this senior housing would be a student and totally changed the life of the people that moved into the housing and the undergraduate mm-hmm. campus because now everybody was a student. What a great idea. Mm-hmm. You know, Claremont also has Claremont. The Claremont College is out here in, in California has a retirement community that is connected to the university where folks in our age cohort and undergraduates and graduate students live in the same facility and are all connected to the university in some kind of way. I mean, what a terrific idea. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that we talk about in terms of the ritual piece is beginning a new adventure. What would the ritual be for the caller from Beach if you decided that you're going to go back to school and that you make a commitment in front of whomever your community is that this is something that you're mm-hmm. going to do and you're going to do it and you're going to kind of report about what it's like along the way and and uh, all of your friends and family are there cheering you on and you find the right setting and the right uh, program and by the way here technology again is important you can do a lot of this stuff on that wouldn't have been possible in in out when in the 60s and 70s you know when we were young but it is completely possible now for you to find a doctoral program which could be both virtual and face-to-face you know Mm -hmm. They exist, and with people like you going to them, yes, I encourage you to get your PhD. And when you do, mm-hmm. let me know, and I will uh, send you a present uh, congratulating you for the wonderful achievement. <laughs> Great. Um, another question from Alan. Well, he makes a comment saying, "Anybody on the call listening, please get vaccinated if you haven't been." I will. I don't often like to do political kind of things, but I, this is not supposed to be political. I 100% agree. So get vaccinated. But he does ask, "How do you feel about anti-aging medicine and research?" So you know, I'm not a doctor. I don't really. I really can't comment about it. I do have a great deal of respect for the Milken Institute on Healthy Aging, which is run by a, a colleague um, named Paul Irving, and a lot of the research findings around those kinds of things are they're aware of it. So if you go to their website, it's called the Milken Institute for I think it's Purposeful Aging. They have a lot of um, helpful right. information. Well, I I mean I 
want to not tax your time and you've gone over, I think we'll just have to invite you to come back if you're willing because well, I know there's there so many be, other areas. <laughs> it will be my pleasure. All kinds of stuff. Well, well thank you. I, so, I, I, do, I, do, I do really encourage people to be in touch with I'm very curious. I mean, the most fun about this work is that I get to meet people that I wouldn't have met before. And the way I do it is because they'll reach out to me on my website and I will get back to them and, you know, we'll develop a relationship through email and eventually when travel is possible, you know, see each other face to face. And I'm looking forward to you visiting in this area at some point. Absolutely. I really look forward (laughs) to it. Any final just takeaway comments that, you know, just the last, thought or anything that you'd like to share with um, all the listeners? So I I will do this. You know, I am a rabbi, so I I just want to say a word of from Jewish tradition or from religious tradition, and that is to remind people of the story of uh, Abraham and Sarah. You know, early in the book of Genesis, the story is that God says to Avram, go to this place where I will send you and you will be a blessing. Well, in my reading of, of the Hebrew Bible, However, we understand divinity, the, the invitation went not just to Avram, but to his partner Sarai. Their names are changed from Avram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah. Why? Because the additional hey, the letter H, is a, one of the names of God. So at this moment in their lives, they receive an invitation to go to a place. They don't know what the place is. Go to a place where this invitation will send them and they will be a blessing. I want to remind people that Abraham and Sarah were not millennials at the time of this invitation. You know, Abraham is 75 years old. It's us, right? It is responding to the invitation of this moment Mm -hmm. in your life. You don't know where it's going to lead, but I think at least I have faith that if we do this with energy with humor and with community that it will be a blessing not only for us as individuals but that we will be part of the transformation of of the world and uh, that is indeed a blessing thank you so much and a blessing to all of us and thank you so much for being here and sharing your wisdom and experience and this wonderful book and I as I said I encourage everybody to order a copy Getting Good at Getting Older by Rabbi Laura Geller and her late husband Richard Siegel so thank you all for being here and thank you again Rabbi Geller for sharing so many wonderful um, insights and wisdoms from yourself and from your book so take care and stay safe and well everybody You've been listening to Revolutionize Your Retirement Radio with Dr. Dorian Mincer. To learn more about the resources mentioned on today's show, listen to past episodes, or download our free retirement transition guide, visit revolutionizeyourretirementradio.com.